Welcome to Bible study. I am so glad to be with you for the, about the next six or eight weeks as we dig deeper into the life of Jesus according to the study by Angie Smith called Matchless, the life and love of Jesus. And there is no better subject in the Bible or in Bible study than Jesus himself. But what's really fun is we're gonna learn what leads up to it and what comes from it. So before we get any farther, let's have a prayer time. Heavenly Father, I thank you for being present in this room with us, wherever we are, remotely, um, digitally, over time and space. You are the God of forever, the, mor the, the morning and the evening and everything in between. So Father, bless us with your enlightenment in your word. Teach us to listen well in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you will grab your Bible, I'm grabbing mine. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to open your Bible into the book of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. It's the first of the four Gospels. I handily have mine marked. I'm just going to show you. If you have your Bible, you can open up like this. And the reason I'm having you open your Bible here is because we're going to do a study of Jesus. And all of the writings about Jesus, as we understand them, begin right here in the book of Matthew and carry on through the New Testament. Most of us are very familiar with the New Testament and the Old Testament, but it was kind of surprising to me the other day when I just measured the heft between the New Testament and the Old Testament, this being the Old. And I realized there's an awful lot of foundational information in the Old Testament that makes the New Testament make sense. In fact, if you just take the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, the Good News, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see how very small those pages are by comparison. So it occurs to me and our author that we probably should spend a little time in the deep dive of the Old Testament. So she has for us on this first week about a 10,000 year study to go over and we'll just, you know, it's no problem for you. I mean, the, the author of the universe invented everything in seven days with, you know, with a day to spare. So I know you've got this. But um, for us, we're just going to take a shallow dive, unfortunately. That's all we can get to today. But my hope is that in the next week, you will be able to begin to see the blueprint and the foundation that God has laid for the coming of Christ, for the coming of Jesus in the New Testament. You'll see it so clearly that it will be undeniable. In fact, for me, over the course of these weeks preparing for this lecture and others, I've just seen so many treasures that I did not before recognize. And when I see them in Jesus, I say, oh, that's what he's talking about. And I hope that happens to you. So let's talk about foundations and blueprints because that's what's on my mind because what I'm doing these days is moving into a new home. And for my four children, they are doing the same. In fact, over this six months, every one of us has moved to a new house. So. We've spent a lot of time watching television and talking about, about design shows. And if you're like me, HGTV is a go-to channel for you. And there's your, any number of your favorite design pairs, whether it's Flip or Flop or Love It or List It or whichever one you like. All of them have a lot to say to us about the design of a new home. And it can get you kind of excited about what's to come. Even though moving is not that much fun, a new house is. And my daughter and her, uh, my son-in-law, her husband, have moved into the area recently and are picking out their very first home. So with all those design ideas in mind, with quartz cabinetry and stainless steel appliances and open concept and mid-century modern design, they went out to look for their first house together. And they found it, the first one they picked, and they put an offer on it. And then they invited us skilled and seasoned parents to come and have a look at it later than we would have liked. However, when we got there, we did see the cute house that they envisioned with plenty of room for workspace and growing into it and all the, all the finishes that they loved. But in the basement, we saw something else. 
we saw cracks. And though we're not engineers, well, I take that back. My husband is an engineer. I am not an engineer. We could see that those cracks could be historically worrisome or they could be currently worrisome. And so they hired an inspector to come in and give him a word on that. And as it went, those cracks were actually currently moving. He said that, in fact, that house had probably been, though it was um, 60 years old, moving ever since it was built. And it continued to move to this day. In fact, all of the finishes upstairs were in jeopardy because of what was going on in the basement. And they had an option to fix it at some great expense or to move on. And so they moved on. And all that shifting sand reminded me of another very famous building with a, with a difficult foundation. This famous building, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Another mid-century beauty. It was mid-12th century in this time. So it was built uh, just outside of Florence in the year 1173 as a bell tower. It's 183 feet tall and 14 and a half tons. And for five years, the tower stood perfectly straight and then it started to slowly shift into the position that it is now. Now, what was the problem with the Leaning Tower of Pisa and what is the reason it hasn't fallen over today? Well, there have been some counterweights applied, but the problem is also familiar to us. That building was built with a nine foot foundation. That's the same as an average basement, nine feet foundation for 183 foot building. So needless to say, too shallow a foundation. And secondly, it was built on clay, which was compacting and shifting over time, such that the clay began to compress and the building began to move until it found a solid place to rest. And that solid place to rest had to do with what the foundation was made of, which is limestone, a very sturdy stone for which this building could rest. And it has rested on that corner of limestone all these years later. A steady and capable stone that can hold up the building is very important. That's an allegory, that's a metaphor, that's an analogy. You'll hear more about it. Because what we need to know is, what is the rock that's holding us up? So let's start in the book of Genesis. So um, I like to call the book of Genesis the, the, the dream home chapter of this particular talk. You know, it's where everything is just the way you wanted it. When you watch these design shows, there's always some compromises you have to make. But in, in the Garden of Eden, no compromise necessary. I'm going to read to you some excerpts from Genesis 2, 7 through 17. You can follow along. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man in whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord had made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers, and there was gold, and the land was good, a bdellium and onyx stones were there. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden in Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone, my flesh of my flesh, and shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Shalom, when everything's working just as it should. When man is in right relationship with God and with another and with the environment, and you can be naked and unashamed, that's a good place. Here we witness God, by his own choice, taking dirt, breathing life into it, and putting it into the most perfect home, into the best real estate on the market. Location, location, location. The first home. And this is where Shalom shows up. There's order. There's provision of food and drink, of beauty. There's wealth. There's relationships. There's together. And there's meaningful work, including meaningful choices. And it was great until it wasn't. Until this one choice came across the agenda and Adam and Eve said to each other, did God really say? And the foundation began to slip. And the contract was broken. And we suffered the ultimate consequence, which is eviction. Eviction from the garden, but also eviction from the shalom of peaceful relationships with God and each other and our dwelling. And Genesis describes the consequences of God's clay-formed image bearers like this. Women, your pain will multiply in childbearing, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I feel that one. And for men, cursed is the ground because of you. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat of it, and you'll return to dust outside the garden where I formed you, taken out of the place that provides everything and put into the place where strife exists. And this is the ultimate bad news. Pain and death would await us there and do. So, like Adam and Eve, we move on. And time takes the, us into the future where the first generation, Cain and Abel, uh, suffer the first murder based on the first bout of jealousy. And the dust gives evidence when God says, where's your brother, Cain? And he says, oh, who am I? My brother's keeper. And, and Genesis tells us, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. That very ground that God gave them to, to work now told the whole story. And subsequent generations evolved into corruption as well until finally God cleans the slate with a flood, saving one son, Noah, and one righteous son to start over again. And you would think that would be great. Shalom returns, but no. Even Noah's descendants blow it in a classic and thematic attempt to make a name for themselves. They build a tower which leans and topples all together because here's what scripture tells us about it. They said, let us build a tower for ourselves with its top in its heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we're dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I'm gonna read that again, Genesis 11:4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we are dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So if you're tracking, pride, the dust of mankind, it's shallow and shifty foundation. And indeed that tower does fall and the people are dispersed despite their best efforts. 
but there is a plan in place that will set the blueprint for the next home God has for us. And it is in the form of a contract, a new lease on life, if you will, with Abram. From the line of Shem, Noah's son, God makes a promise saying this in Genesis 17, one through eight. When Abram was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. All generations, I know you heard me say offspring after you many times, because of this promise, because of this new contract, because of this prime real estate that God is promising, the promised land, things will go well for Abram. But there's an if in there. Walk before me and be blameless. But it was laid out, a plan of right living with a righteous God in the right place at the right time and a shalom, a foundation that works and they all lived happily ever after. Right. So Abram and his wife Sarai, waiting for that promise to be delivered in the form of an offspring, got impatient and made a choice of their own with some of the same thoughts that Adam and Eve had had. Did God really say? And instead of waiting on him, they used the materials that they had to build their own family in the form of Hagar, a slave, uh, a slave of, of Sarah. Abram begets a child, Ishmael. Problem ensues, jealousy in the household, more trauma. The sand shifts, and Hagar and her son Ishmael are evicted from the family tree. But God, in his good time, does bring the promised child to Sarah and Abraham, the new names they receive. And that child is Isaac, and he does carry on the hope of the generations. And he is fruitful and does multiply and has twins, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob has 12 sons. Uh, you've seen the uh, Technicolor Dreamcoat. You know that Joseph and the other brothers are the 12 tribes, and they come to a land that they reside in, and they do well until they don't do well, until they be end up becoming slaves of another man, building towers for his glory, making bricks out of unyielding soil, and once again, battling with the ground. But God uses another son, Moses, to move his covenantal people to a new home again. And now we're getting somewhere because this is the first story, the first level of the house that is promised. So Moses moves his people out of trauma and trouble and uh, on, onto dry ground, in fact, so dry that it's the desert. And on instructions from God that Moses gets personally up on a mountain, he brings down the Ten Commandments to help those in the desert order themselves up so they can live rightly for God. And equipped with those stone tablets, the law, he is able to help the people bear the weight of their own behavior and their own sin and consequences. And he gives Moses complete instructions as to what to do next, and that is to build a mobile home for him so that he and his law can walk through the desert with his people so that he can bear the weight of their sin, so that there is a a, a setup, a clean process by which they can come to the Lord and, and live in a dwelling place with him. He creates the tabernacle. And it's on that topic, 
that I intend to camp out for the next few minutes, pun intended, because the tabernacle is a tent. And God, the great designer, gives all the general contracting information to Moses in a verbal agreement. And you can find all of this in Exodus 25 through 33, very specific instructions as to how to build a place for the law, for his heart to reside within the people's, um, to, to come off the mountain and reside in the neighborhood. And Moses turns it into a reality. Moses says to the, the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 25, 1 through 9, Speak to the people of Israel that they may make for me a contribution and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, you shall make it. I love this because just like on the design shows, um, they start with a budget. So if you, if you read thoroughly through Exodus 25 sometime, you'll see that he tells exactly how to raise the money to build the building. What's my budget, they always say on the divine sh design shows. How, far, how, mu how much can I build? What more can we do? So we start with the budget, and then we have the exact specifications in words given to Moses. So God is specific here. So in this PowerPoint, you'll see there's a specific floor plan, and there's lots of references here, which I'm not going to read all of them to you, but you can check them out in Exodus 25, 26, 27, and through 33. Toward the end of uh, the, that set of um, chapters, you'll see that there's a design and a process and then a completion. It's almost as if they've checked, um, checked the two boxes to make sure they did it exactly the way they intended. So we have a specific floor plan laid out. There's a court, and it's a large court, and it's tented, and it's got rings that are made a certain height and a certain way and a certain proximity to things. And then within it, there's a private ensuite, I'm going to call it. That's a name we hear on the, on the design shows. A private ensuite where only the high priest can go once a year, and where within the private ensuite, there's even a more private ensuite, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments will reside. And let's talk a little bit about the Ark of the Covenant and all of that. You see in this next section, all the custom furnishings that God designs to keep himself dwelling rightly among his people. He has a bronze basin with specifications as to what it's looking like and what it's made like and how it works, and it's for the purification of those who will come to be near him. It's filled with water. There's a burnt offering altar where we make sacrifices, where the blood of the animals will then go into the um, atonement area for um, in, the, in, in one time of year with the high priest and where offerings are made regularly for the atonement of, of daily sins. There's a table for bread. There's a golden lampstand to remind them of the light of God. There's an altar for incense for the wafting of the of prayers to be replicated in that smoke in a beautiful, specific incense um, recipe. There's the Ark of the Covenant, which is a beautiful box gilded in gold, covered with angels' wings, and on the top is a place where the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, comes to rest and visit, and, and where the blood of the Lamb is sprinkled once a year for the atonement of sins. And that spot is called the mercy seat, the place for God to come down. Very, very specific. You could draw this. Many people have. You can find many pictures of this on the internet and in your Bible dictionaries and in your Bibles themselves, I'm sure. Very fancy, replicated by, by, by the people of Israel at that time, and finished with the design designer finishes. You know on those designer shows how there's always like a guy who makes a living edge table or does cool metal work or something? Well, those designers are actually named in Exodus 31 and they're given specific responsibilities of how to use their skills for the glory of this tabernacle, this tent, this indwelling place of God. It's very 
um, specific, it's, it's mobile, and it goes with the people across the desert, which is good because they are living on shifting sand and they need something of solid stone to write them to where they're going. So this all works well, and I'd like to say we're at a happily ever after point there, but you know better because we wouldn't be here today if that were the case. So there are layer upon layer of ordinance then rules upon rules for the people and priests and judges and kings have to help adjudicate their living standards and the work of the house of God becomes so heavy and so burdensome that I can actually feel it even as I speak of it. Laws and rules for everything, sacrifices for everything. And what is lost is the beautiful dwelling, indwelling of God amongst the people. And when that mobile home finally gets to the promised land and those who have built it decide to make a permanent temple and it becomes even more beautiful but by the same design as the tabernacle, the weight of the law still lays heavy on their people. And it's ransacked and it's torn down and rebuilt three times such that the last time the tabernacle is devoid of the most important element, the law itself is stolen and the Ark of the Covenant is lost forever. This is bad news. God wants to dwell with his people. He wants us to know how to live rightly. He wants to be there with us. And we get confused by all the rules, which makes this next story really good news. The second story of God's remodeled design for his people. You know, on those, on those shows, there's always the time when they go, it's time to renovate, it's time to demolish. It's, it's what do they call it, wrecking day or something like that when one of, the, one of the design team is just so happy to get rid of some walls that, that block the open, uh, open concept, big term, open concept. You know, when they do that on those, those shows, the renovation is not a full demolition, at least not, uh, it's not supposed to be. Just certain things are taken out to open the place up for, for more communal living. And our, our Jesus, um, He's our second story who opens things up for more communal living. His is a renovation and not a demolition. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Isaiah had talked about this in Isaiah 28. 700 years before Jesus came, he said, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a, t a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah says, I'm going to lay a stone that's lasting and true. In architecture, a cornerstone has a couple of purposes. Uh, to be the truest stone, to be the just stone, to be the most true against what everything else is measured. I once hung wallpaper from a corner that was crooked and by the time I got to the other side of the wall, the wallpaper was so slanted I had to take it down because the corner I began in was not just and true. But Isaiah says God promises us a just and true plumb line, a righteous corner from which to start. And Jesus, the cornerstone, is the place upon which, uh, on which we measure everything else. And the other significance for a cornerstone is just to be a marker, a marker for the author, a marker for time. And often there is a, a hidden time capsule inside. Um, from, old, from ancient times, they've had what they called foundation deposits, something in there that indicates where we came from and the, and the stone outside where we're going to. And that is Jesus, the truest cornerstone, 
who holds the foundation deposits of our initial shalom. He is the promise and holds it for us for the future. So I want to talk to you a little bit about how this is the completion, this, this temple, this, this, this new chapter is the completion of all that we saw in the Old Testament. We can say that we have open concept. All of our, all of our uh, needs are fulfilled in him. The death, he tears down the actual walls of death. You know, in Matthew 27, we see when Jesus is on the cross, the curtain of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were open and bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. We see that this is the ultimate open concept. He is the complete opening concept of our life. In fact, Jesus, the picture of Jesus as the temple, as the tabernacle is so clear to me now, I'm surprised I ever missed it. He says, there's room for all of us in this new edition. Let not your hearts be troubled, he says in John 14, 20, 14, 1. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there's many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will also come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you also may be. Jesus is the place we're going and he's made a place for us to be going so he can be our Emmanuel dwelling with us forever. This is the good news that comes out of the bad news. It's the desire for shalom that began in the beginning that continues through the ending. He gives us these custom furnishings in himself. He is our provision. Philippians 8:19 says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the fragrant offering. He is the living water. He is the spotless lamb. All the attributes of the tabernacle and the temple, temple become personified in him. And he is the ultimate designer finish. He says it is finished in John 19, 20. And in Revelation 22, 13, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is all our shalom. I'll close with one big reveal. You know, the design shows always have a big reveal. This one's from John's words at the end of our Bible in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, 1 through 5. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall they be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he finishes with this in verse five. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making everything new. This is the best news. A new home that lasts forever. Since our eviction from the garden, since we lost that sense of actual shalom, we have been longing for it. And we're left on the shifty foundation upon which we build our towers, our, our jobs, our identities, our pocketbooks. 
our homes. We always struggling against our nature and his, unfortunately. And we're forced to move or apply counterweights to offset our shallow footing. But God gives us a solid rock to rest on. And Jesus, the rebuilder, the restorer, has a place prepared for us. A place of eternal shalom. This is what we learn in our first set of lessons this week. That the story that begins in the beginning comes to fullness in Christ. We can count on him to be our shalom. I hope you will find the treasures as you listen to these Bible stories this week and recognize the so many ways God loves you and intends to dwell with you. Let me pray. Father God, yours are the words of everlasting life. It is your desire to be our shalom, and we, like the characters we've talked about today, often miss the point and run ahead and build our own towers on shaky ground. And so, Lord, today, stop us in our tracks, help us listen well, and wait patiently upon your instruction because you want to be everything for us and you invite us into your home and prepare a place for us. In Jesus' name, I thank you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for calling us to yourself.